Rather than having made prudent life choices all along, most of us tend to only seek healthful solutions once we've had a scare in the form of a diagnosis or event. This is HealthScape with Dr. Trevor Campbell. In this program, we'll show you the techniques, innovations, and holistic ideas that you can use to put yourself on the path to better health. Now, here is Dr. Trevor Campbell. Hello, and welcome to HealthScape. I'm your host, Dr. Trevor Campbell. Today's topic is the problem of authenticity, and our guest is Dr. Robert Barrett. One of HealthScape's main areas of focus are the biopsychosocial aspects of chronic illness, physical and mental. Psychological and social issues are vitally important to address in chronic disease. While physicians and therapists can advise and support the changes that need to be made, the changes must be affected by the individual themselves. Now, I have interviewed Dr. Barrett in January this year when we discussed his fascinating book, Hardwired, How Our Instincts to be Healthy are Making Us Sick, in which he postulates that our survival skills, which have allowed us to reach our present level of complexity, sophistication, sophistication, abundance, are now paradoxically the very same skills that are working against us, particularly with regard to our health and well-being. The episode of this first interview is called How Our Instincts to be Healthy are Making Us Sick. As there was insufficient time on that occasion to discuss all that we had hoped to, we will continue talking about some of the many gems that this book offers, as well as the problem of authenticity and the challenges that they, who would be authentic, most certainly will encounter on several fronts in our society that exhorts us to be authentic, but does little to reward or even acknowledge it, sometimes even penalizing one for it. A brief bio follows. Dr. Robert Barrett is the author of the book, Hardwired, as mentioned, uh, How Our Instincts to be Healthy are Making Us Sick, published by Springer Nature. Robert has spent much of his life studying behavior, group dynamics, and organizational culture, and is the recipient of 12 major academic awards for his contributions to the way we perceive and remedy deep conflict. Robert's primary focus is on why we do the things we do and how individuals and teams can reach top performance. Robert's experiences are truly diverse. To mention a few, he has traveled to rural Nigeria to interview recruiters and leaders of death squads on how they indoctrinate fighters. He helped build Canada's first ever patient safety officer program for Canadian, Canadian hospitals and was lead researcher on a unique program designed to investigate ways to mitigate <laughs> astronaut crew conflict in space for future Mars missions, among several other challenging projects. He writes for publications like the Huffington Post and is a frequent guest on national television and radio. Welcome back to Healthscape, Robert. It's wonderful to have you here again. Thanks so much. Yeah, it's great to be back. Talk to you again. Yeah. So since we last spoke in January, are you seeing any more evidence that supports your premise that there is increasing friction between our evolutionary and survival drives, uh, you know, in our modern world. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's, it's, it's quite amazing when you, when you write these books and you think, okay, the shelf life of this book might be a year or so with respect to the, you know, the theory that the book puts out there, but 
it seems like this one is in the feedback that I've that I've received uh, and the interest in the book seems like it's only becoming more relevant. And uh, perhaps that is, you know, with the passing of uh, of COVID lockdowns, uh, we've seen a lot of these um, uh, these innate drives that um, you know that um, don't necessarily serve us well, um, actually being exacerbated by some of these these lockdowns and some of the social and communication dynamics that we see here. So we're we're seeing a lot more evidence uh, that supports the, the the premise in the book. It's a uh, it's a very very interesting time. And uh, when we we started with uh, COVID, I said to, uh, to some of my colleagues, I said we're entering the the biggest psychological experiment in human history, because to you know, wars obviously are you know wars when we go through those those are unexpected and and obviously have great psychological impact. But something that affects the entire world like mm-hmm. this has never has never happened before. So it's very very interesting what we're seeing now. Right, and so um, you feel that it's highlighting what you've said more or less. Is is that correct? Yeah, and in terms of social media and everything we mentioned, and I again refer people to this earlier podcast uh, that we had an interview of the name already mentioned. In in what ways, Robert? Is it... so? Yeah, to sort of recap the the basic premise of the book: um, hardwired, meaning that you know something is innate within us that is is part of who we are. It's part of our evolutionary history and the the evolutionary drives. And then the and then the the subtitle, basically, uh, how our instincts to be healthy are making us sick, suggests that those instincts, those evolutionary instincts that have, as you mentioned in your intro, that have kept us healthy and surviving throughout the you know, throughout human history are still active and they're still working in the background, like marionette strings that are making our decisions or informing our decisions every day. We aren't necessarily conscious or cognizant of them, but they are determining our, our behavior. And then when we have our modern world, which is changing faster than we have ever seen our, our environment change before, and that this is creating a strain uh, because our, our, our these these drives, which are are very reward centered drives, uh, we're constantly seeking a reward. Um, are when we're put into this environment of a of a land of plenty, we have we don't have a, the the, the turn off switch. We don't have a way to mitigate that drive and to slow down. And so we start living a life of excess, and that can manifest in obviously simple ways like uh, you know what we what we eat, um, our diet. But it's also playing out in the social environment and the way that we communicate, particularly online, mm-hmm. and that and that is having some significant ramifications in terms of of how we feel, our psychology, the social dynamics, and those then translate actually into sometimes real physiological or biological disease processes, um, which can shorten our lives. So, so these these so-called marionette strings are still working every day and but they're not necessarily serving us um, as as well as as we should and there's lots of layers to, to dig into with that right so uh, given our hardwire we stuck or as they say lumbered with us uh, not a lot we can do about it how have we at a societal level I'm not going to get into virology and stuff like that. But um, how have we handled it, do you think? Well, not well, as would be the way to sum it up. I mean, look, if you look at the big picture, we have 
you know, right now we have say 15,000 books. Last time I looked about 15,000 books on how to achieve happiness out there for general, you know, readership, general consumers. Um, what we're seeing in adolescence now, um, you know, are absolutely just the opposite of that. Despite the fact that we've got all these books available to us, we're seeing, you know, very, very much increased uh, anxiety levels. Um, uh, about one in three um, adolescents, uh, even according to the latest research last year, uh, experienced some type of classifiable anxiety disorder within the year. Uh, one in five adults. Depression and anxiety are now the leading disease burden in the world. And the COVID lockdowns have increased what we call a neuroticism, a depression, and something that we call allostatic load, which is basically wear and tear on the body, which we know is, is linked to actual disease processes, the more, the more you have a higher allostatic load. And, and uh, you know, other things, like over the last 100 years, sleep has dropped, you know, a couple hours a night. Um, we know that sleep is obviously, you know, very, very regenerative and we need it. So there are ramifications for that. Uh, and then in your world, we would see you know, that, that Americans have some of the highest chronic pain levels in the world. And this right. is, I know this is, this is your domain. And, uh, you know, despite consuming, you know, probably about 80% of the, the world's opioids. So we have all this, all this information, you know, 50 million peer reviewed journals at our fingertips and 30,000 other scientific journals. Um, but, but yet our ability to take care of ourselves is seems to be waning. We don't seem to have the skill set anymore to be able to take care of ourselves because, you know, I would argue that there are forces in the background biologically that are are propelling us, um, you know, towards um, ill health. And that, and that uh, you know, does play out in the social world. And I know that's um, some of what we're going to talk about today. So I think that also through COVID, we've seen some other interesting dynamics unfold. I think we all sense that there's a greater division, uh, societal divisions. Um, there are tribes and camps that are formed politically. Mm -hmm. uh, I think we've seen greater divisions in terms of health. So we have on a public health at a really broad community level, we see, you know, increased obesity. We mentioned the depression. We see these kind of negative health trends that are happening, but we also have a small percentage of the population that are taking it in the opposite direction. You know, they're, you know, they're doing their their meditation, they're doing their hot yogas, they're doing biohacking, they're, they're you know, taking nutraceuticals, yeah. uh, you know, it's, it's, we, there's a divide as well. So we, there's no happy middle ground, it seems like you've got, you know, really large percentage of ill health and a small percentage are, are, you know, really cutting edge uh, biohacking. So there's been a lot of real big division. And, and it's been, you know, in terms of the, the societal part of it, I mean, the media hasn't helped um, because the media tends to fall into different camps, both uh, politically left, politically right. Uh, and then, you know, through social media, which was the primary way that we would communicate and get information during our COVID lockdowns, um, did fall into those camps as well. So then you get these strong, growing uh, communities of choice, these echo chambers that people fall into, and that's where they get their information. And we, we all know that that is, that's created divisions within amongst friends and family. And, and in some cases, you know, we, lo we lose trust in the system. We know that trust mm -hmm. is trusting your future is one of the biggest determinants of, of living a happy and content existence. And now if we don't trust things, we're, we're not going to be happy. <laughs> that's the bottom line. And so there's, all sorts of really interesting things that have happened through COVID that have really exacerbated uh, some of these hardwiring effects. 
Yeah, I, I had a problem with the language right in the beginning when I heard of this good news being heralded about a solution, a vaccine, and we were talking about warp speed. And I thought, well, why would one use that name for a medical or healthcare intervention? I mean, can you really market a warp speed neurosurgical operation? Would you like to go for a warp speed? We can do a warp speed on you. <laughs> yeah. It's not an award-winning concept, right, for anybody. And I was very happy to see this very thing uh, issue surface in a very well-known uh, medical website. Uh, it was written by an ethicist. That's one of the problems and, and also what a boost mm -hmm. is. The other thing that, that, that came up is that people felt danger and there, was, there were camps that were very judgmental. I'm not going to pine too much on that, but ready to pounce. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we saw this enormous growth of scientism as opposed to science. Everyone was saying the science, the science. In fact, I did an earlier podcast where I said if someone precedes um, <laughs> the word science with the, I'm already on sort of alert. Uh, you know, the problem is we know that, you know, epistemology, that science is not the only way of knowing. It's a very reliable way of knowing, the scientific method, but the excessive belief in the power on, of scientific knowledge and techniques when it's applied to things like politics <laughs> or philosophy, you know, it just it's, it doesn't really work. And one cannot deny experience. So, you, what we had, we had a, a riling effect or a um, agitating effect, a very unfortunate. I don't see anyone behind this or anything like that. It's just that there were so many things to be vigilant of. We were in a state of hypervigilance uh, hyper and everything was a threat. Yeah. Uh, you know, and it worked in all camps. And, and to me, that's the single bit. The other thing, uh, the, the data was a bit disappointing to say the least, um, and, and a few other things. Now, this article doesn't mention every. I'm not referring to this article for everything. They mention uh, language and certain questions about ethics and science. I mean, obviously, one wants freedom, but you, in certain abnormal situations, and this was by any means business as usual, I think we can all agree on that, you, you have to counter people's safety. But at the same time, saying to, um, I mean, the elderly, for example, were told to be safe at home. From that point of view, yes, I agree. But we also know that it's not entirely a safe situation for elderly people to not have any physical activity or visits. Mm -hmm. Already lonely. Anyway, it's, it's, we're all learning this is new. No blame being laid at any door, just to make sure. Yeah. But um, it, it was certainly a roller coaster ride, and I think it's only becoming evident now the effect. Because when you're in coping mode, you know you're doing your stuff, and you're getting through the week. But suddenly you realize, well, wait a minute, uh, this is this has been a heavy heavy duty event for most mm -hmm. of us. Now there'll be the people who shrug it off. They always are, you know. But mm -hmm. um, anyway, so it's it's. Yeah, it's certainly a lot that's happened. Um, yeah, I yeah, I, f I feel that 
you know, the, the science is, you know, it's, it's now become the political science yes. and, and, <laughs> and, and that's what we're following, but yeah. we're, you know, we're not as generally speaking, you see this in elections as well. We're not really great at, at nuance or right. understand or right. understanding the, the data. And that's why I talk about sometimes the, you know, all these journals and, you know, that are at our fingertips, but, you know, when it comes to, you know, even an election in a, in a, it could be Canada, it could be the U S if you ask somebody about some of the international relations, um, you know, questions or something that has to do with the economy, a lot of times we just, we, we tend to move the conversation back to those, you know, things that people, all people have an opinion on. Maybe most people don't have an opinion on, on, you know, on big, you know, macroeconomic, but, mm-hmm. but we have, everybody has an opinion on, on those, those low lying, uh, you know, fruit, easy to pick. And, Right. Yeah. And it's, you know, we're having a, yeah, we're just, we're just picking that easy fruit. It's, we're not very good at nuance. And uh, so that, that brings, that puts us into, you know, into very easily definable camps and we're comfortable in these camps and, and that perpetuates um, some of the nonsense that we're seeing. And then, and then I think that the media does play into that as well. And, you know, this, this gets into, this gets into interesting territory because, you know, I listen to the the news and what, what, you know, what is the news? Um, Because we have news that most certainly uh, leans uh, left. We have news that certainly leans right. And I try to dabble in all of that um, and uh, try to get a more more balanced approach. But it's, you know, I have, I have friends and colleagues that are, that are, you know, clearly in one camp or the other. And, you know, I do, when I do these podcasts, you know, often when we get into the, the subject of COVID, I have to say, I have to say this, you know, I'm, you know, I actually, I'm pro vaccine, you know, I've always been pro vaccine, uh, even prior to COVID and I am vaccinated, but then why do I feel like I have to say that, you know, what is, what is it about our, our uh, social dynamic um, that, that makes me feel like I have to say that out loud um, uh, is as an introduction. And there's something I think there that we need to learn from that there's a fear that's happening with respect to how we're we're communicating, uh, that we have to feel we have to check those boxes so that we're not labeled one one way or the other. Right, that's certainly true. Um, so, Robert, you know, with all this information floating around, we what about authenticity in all of this? The, the you know the phenomenon, the problem one has uh, at any age and in any time zone. When I say time zone, I don't mean geographical, but historical time uh, era. The problem one has with authenticity, um, obviously the sound biological choice is to be authentic, which also is not nearly as draining on one energetically. And we have society exhorting us to be authentic, as do philosophers, poets, and so on. But somehow penalizes us for doing so, socially, at the workplace, and at an institution level. In fact, it's in, in authenticity is commonly rewarded, mm-hmm. uh, uh, but not fated, of course, because it's a crypto transaction. Um, what are your feelings about this? Do you agree, disagree? Yeah, well, there's, there's a few layers there. I think the um, being authentic, you know, it's obviously, it's a very much a, a pop, culture um meme that is out there but you know as you rightfully say this is something that has been with the you know our human development for you know eons uh authenticity but i think it's it we can break it down a little bit we you know what we hear about you know 
when you read, you know, the, you know, whatever uh, online talks about being authentic. Okay. Being authentic. We, we talk about that starting with um, yourself. And that's what most people are talking about. It's like, well, live authentically, live your best life, live, live according to your own core values and principles. But the problem, as you, as you know, the problem comes when we communicate differently than that. And then, so we start communicating in a way that tries to keep up with the narratives, the popular narratives that we want to be part of. And that can lead to a tension between the authenticity that we like to have and we'd like to live for ourselves and the authenticity, the so-called authenticity that we put out into the public world. And when those are different and the way that we advertise ourselves and ourselves, that can lead to a, a tension that creates stress. And it also creates, the, again, that, that mistrust um, in the world and suspicion. And, and then also, you know, part of the, the fact is that we have to then, as we talked about, you have to be part of this group and you have to keep this narrative up and keeping this, this facade up, it can be, can be draining. And that does then increase the, the so-called wear and tear. Now, your question also talked about historically, uh, is there an advantage or, or disadvantage to this? We all, a big part of the book, when I looked at, at the bottom line of a lot of the social dynamics was, was status. We want to have yes. status with, within our group. So you can imagine, you know, you know, hundreds of thousands of years ago, we're, we're, we're you know, in a rural environment. We, you know, our, our life depends and our family's life depends on us being part of the group. We don't want to be kicked out of the group. Mm -hmm. uh, we have to be part of the group. So we have to keep a status or a level of status within the group so that um, they think that there's some value to us uh, sticking around. And so right. the, we're constantly trying to be part of a group. And this is, this is instilled in us as one of those instincts, those evolutionary drives that, that it still informs our behavior today. So we all, we want to be part of a group. So we're actually in some respects, when you, when you put social media on top of it, uh, now our, the idea is that we, we have to say whatever it takes to be part of that group, you know, right. whatever it takes, you got to check the box, keep the group narrative going, um, whatever it takes to get those likes to be part of the group. And that, that has to do with a lot of our evolutionary psychology that's been over the years. Now we can't be inauthentic, um, with, uh, those who are immediately around us, our immediate family, because, you know, there's a nose for that. We have a nose for inauthenticity and there's only so much we can, maybe you're going to tolerate that from, you know, somebody you don't know very well on social media, but once we get into very, very close groups, close knit family groups, that inauthenticity will be, uh, it, it, it's, it's not going to be something that is an evolutionary advantage that's going to serve us well, but on a bigger scale, you're right. Inauthenticity, despite the fact that we talk about it so much, could be advantageous to our survival. And that's that's that that separation and that tension, I think, is 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 where we're at right now. And that is affecting our health and it's affecting all sorts of uh, parts of our lives. Right. Now, it's definitely pervasive. And this is uh, I want to use this opportunity to make people aware we think of society ticking away but it's the it's the matrix of of our being in the sense that um, it's it's where we we operate and then even something as uh, you know we say work is only part of our life but until working from home it was 8 hours a day for most people and we sometimes are uh, blindsided by the 
profound effects that things can have. And, um, you know, also how society operates. Uh, it's very interesting that, um, you know, it, it, you can't go to a medical conference, a day medical conference, without there being some sort of talk on bullying. Uh, and, and, you know, we, we profess to want to stamp it out and all this kind of thing. But um, when you look at the stats, three quarters of people who are bullied end up resigning because there's, there's no restitution, intervention, sometimes not even recognition. And um, you have to ask, when does, how does this happen? And very often when you look at the legislation, the person who must make the complaint has to have like watertight evidence before they approach, but someone who's aware of the complaint has to report it straight away. I mean, this, you know, just weird stuff like that. And, um, and very often these people are protected by higher management who use them as the in-house Rottweiler. So people leave with this feeling of injustice very often as well because of society not being quite as authentic yeah. as it exhorts us to be. But I, I, I believe that anyway. So. Yeah. No, I I, uh, I absolutely agree. Uh, I I was uh, I, I talked to a lot of business leaders um, in the course of my work, and it was, and and employees, and it, there's uh, you know, without giving you know naming the the company or anything, it was really fascinating talking to one employee who who told me a a, a that uh, she was this victim of racism, and uh, you know I listened to her story and you know very clearly a victim of racism. There's no question at all. And then she said, you know, the problem is, is that the company, it's a big, you know, big fortune 500 company, the company puts out these platitudes um, and these commitments to, to, you know, to stamping out racism, um, inclusivity. And she says, but it doesn't, it doesn't translate into what happens on the ground. And she said, so she goes, if, you know, if I go to, you know, her, the middle management and I, and I complain about it. She said, you know, it'll be me that's, it'll be her that suffers. She said, you know, I'll be, I'll be, you know, taking off my, the preferred shifts uh, that, that, that she wants, or, um, you know, maybe uh, held back for promotion because, you know, there's uh, now something on the file that's a little troubling. Um, she mm -hmm. says, it's, 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 she goes, it's much better for me to suffer in silence and keep quiet, despite the fact that, the, despite the fact that the company has made these grand gestures that they're committed to this cause. And so I think that is it's that's fascinating because once again we are seeing uh, you know this this is not necessarily fear based but the company is is coming out and saying that we you know we support this and and almost trying to show that you know the public like no we you know we're on board too don't worry we've we've got this covered but it's not necessarily translating down through now that could be a leadership problem and it probably is a leadership problem. But uh, it could also be that it's it's difficult for some people to you know necessarily change the you know the negative inertia that we've experienced over years. And obviously, racism is something that we need to be very very cognizant of, and we need to you know correct it where we see it. Uh, but it, this you know again, this is not necessarily translating, or it's an example of of you know platitudes that that um, have nothing happening beneath the water level uh, with respect to actually something really happening. Robert, I, I have to interrupt you here. Uh, unfortunately, for a brief uh, commercial break, will be. Uh, you're listening to Healthscape with your host, Dr. Trevor Campbell. I'm speaking with Dr. Robert Barrett on the problem of authenticity. We'll be right back. 
Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Are you satisfied with your chronic pain treatment? Chronic pain experts agree that recovery can only occur when the psychological and social issues which help trigger and drive the chronic pain are treated along with the other problems. Medications, injection therapy, and a range of physical therapies may provide temporary relief of symptoms, but they don't actually address the root causes that drive the chronic pain. I'm Dr. Trevor Campbell, a chronic pain consultant and author of The Language of Pain, a self-help book for those struggling with chronic pain. Add this type of therapy to your existing treatment plan and experience the difference. Get your copy of my book, The Language of Pain, on Amazon. And for further direction, there's also the Language of Pain online course available on my website, www.trevorcampbellmd.com. Act now to take back your life. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to Healthscape with Dr. Trevor Campbell. If you have a question or comment about the show, please send an email to host at trevorcampbellmd.com. Now back to the show. Well, this um, this does happen when, um, you know, the HR moves to public relations, right? This kind of thing. I just want to mention another thing, a, a fundamental uh, a problem um, is I work for a large organization. One of the first things, well, one of the early things I was told was that optics are more important. And it was a phrase like this than reality. And that's kind of messes with your head. And the mm-hmm. idea being that a, a, um, a perceived conflict, for example, is way worse than a real one. But I think when the messaging becomes, you know, perceptions, eclipsing reality. I I think this is not a good direction to go. And the sad thing was this person was a a manager, a medical manager, and sort of delivered this to me with aplomb and like as though it was sophisticated and professional. And and, and we now see things like a, you probably with conflict resolution, familiar with the term, a a demeanor um, complaint where if someone gets the impression that you vaguely rolled your eyes or something like um, side showed irritation, fatigue even, it gets escalated to the highest authority. And I just think, you know, is, does, this lay one, does is this lay people wide open to abuse? Yeah, I mean, we have, you know, the sort of the deplatforming uh, effect that's that's going on. And um, and as you say, there's there's almost a, you know, guilty until proven innocent, uh, which should be rightfully the other way around. Uh, so, you know, and, and you're right, it is, it's, it's sort of a you get a, a complaint against you and um, by by someone who is apparently aggrieved. Um, because of the perception of what you said, which may or may not have anything to do with, with the reality, or it may be taken completely out of context. And then the person said it has to be on the, on the defensive um, and, and prove themselves to be somehow morally virtuous enough to be considered uh, acceptable again in society. And, and that 
and, and, and that's a problem because again, that's that guilty until proven innocent. And we, we know that, you know, part of the problem um, may be that there's a hypersensitivity on the, uh, on the internet and social media. Right. Uh, this is particularly uh, evident amongst millennials. And I don't, I don't like to pick on millennials. Um, you know, I think millennials are, are some of the most, uh, you know, innovative um, group that we've, that we've seen. And they are they've very, very good at balancing the technical world um, with the social world. But, uh, you know, there is some great research that talks about the different generations and millennials being one of them and how they, in the, in the environment that they, that they grew, grew up in as being um, slightly more protected. And, uh, and that has created a, a sense that uh, everything is a threat and everything can be a threat. Um, and so that generally speaking, not generally speaking, there is a, what we see in psychology is, is a slightly a higher hypersensitivity right. uh, to, to, and, and that does play across um, in terms of saying, Hey, what this person said, uh, I find offensive and I find, you know, threatening uh, when, you know, really we should, there's probably should be a, a little bit more resilience um, and being able to say, okay, well, that person's, first of all, that person may have a right to say what their opinions are. Um, if you're more of a libertarian view and, and then also uh, maybe slightly less reactive. And, and, and if you have a problem with what they're saying, then debate the, then debate the idea. Uh, don't necessarily attack the person, their life, their livelihood, their family, <laughs> their dog, whatever it is, you know? So, and, and I think, and I think that's, that's, that's part of it. Um you know, millennials uh, dominate um, for the most part. This is statistics that uh, they dominate um, Twitter. There's you know about forty percent or almost half of the of the users on Twitter and other social media are are millennials. Uh, the Gen Zs, which are the ones that come at the tail end of the millennials, are now at the age of the teens to the mid twenties, around 25, 27. Mm-hmm. They they so far um, they seem to be exhibiting a um, a little bit greater tolerance uh, and inclusivity of different narratives and opinions, which is promising. Um, but you know, it's early days. But the Gen Zs, um, and this is interesting, are the they're the first generation in human history to have grown up with a, the internet uh, at their fingertips from birth, uh, essentially. Uh, and, and that we haven't seen that before. So that's going to be a very interesting psychological experiment in itself. Yeah. No. No. For sure. And and that's going to. Yeah, it's going to be a sea change on its own. And then, of course, we're also talking about, you know, Twitter and, uh, and, and all uh, the social media. Um, what about the, the, the profusion of bland, insincere and platitudinous, it's a good word, drivel on social media and even professional social media where the authors and instigators end up being lionized by these clusters or flotillas of adrift and cowering likers? Yeah. You know, this yeah. is kind of welcome to the age. I never met a meme I didn't like to twist <laughs> what does it so, uh, sound like a bit. Um, is this simply the dumbing down by vacuous people who don't know how to bond, or am I missing something? Well, again, I think it, I think it, it, it I mean, there is a, a theory that there is a dumbing down that's happening. Again, despite the fact we have all, all this information at our fingertips, there's a theory that we're, you know, there's a dumbing down. But I think once again, that there is a, there is a, this idea that uh, part of our hardwiring is, is uh, group status and that we have to try to maintain that all the time. And I think this, this perpetuates our narrative. There's some great work. There's one, a, a phrase that's called uh, preference falsification, 
Uh, it's in the book by, I think the author's uh, Quran. It's a private truth, public lies came out in the mid 1990s. So quite a while, quite a while ago. Um, I, I don't, I don't love the word falsification because I think it tends to, you know, look at more of a science aspect, yeah. uh, whether something's falsifiable, but what that book basically says is that we often hide uh, we often hide our true beliefs behind the public visage or or uh, avatar that we put out, um, and that causes a lot of of stress and strain. It's fatiguing, and 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 that uh, the the we see this you know in political environments. We saw you know you see it in in, in um, Eastern Germany, um, some of the former Soviet states uh, where. You to speak out against uh, the political uh, machinery was, uh, you know, was was very dangerous for you and your family. So uh, you you definitely definitely may have not supported secretly not supported the regime, but yet it was very unhealthy uh, to speak out against it. Uh, so we see that that play out in those political environments uh, as well. So that but that that basically that difference between your inner beliefs, your true beliefs, and what you're putting out there is causing is a is very distressing psychologically to have to live that every day. It's like living a lie. And 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 that is, I think, one of the things that we've seen in the last little while um, become exacerbated with the COVID lockdowns and the way that we've communicated. And I think that that is that is going to directly translate into actual health issues, because uh, we know that 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 stress and anxiety and that allostatic load that we talked about, they, they link right in. Yeah, that's why I bring it up so much. You know, the social stuff, it's not, not, not many people are looking at it. You know, as you spoke <clears throat> about these oppressive you know, authoritarian regimes, I can now thinking of North Korea, where we periodically see orgiastic displays of forced jubilation on the guy's birthday. Um, it was just this beyond sad. And yet, you know, there's obviously an imperative to comply. Uh, you know, one assumes for rations and so forth. Um, I mean, that, that sometimes you have to look at an extreme case to see, you know, um, Bertrand Russell famously said, see the general in the particular. But sometimes you, you have to look at the particular to see in the general too. Uh, and then basically that dynamic applies to, to epistemology. You, could, you know, you can deduce from, um, from general to particular and vice versa. But it's certainly not doing anything for our health. We, we hear from royalty, we hear from leaders, you know, mental health, mental health awareness. And we appear to be blind to so many of the causes that are so pervasive in every day. It's almost as though people need help to make that association. Yeah. It's true. The obvious. Uh, um, and, and that's what I'm trying to relay here. This is not, this is not a, aimed at anybody. It's aimed at these are the issues w with which we live. And then we astonished to see that the level of antidepressant treatment has gone through the roof or the, you know, the chemicals are in the fish and so forth because it is just all pervasive. And um, yet nobody, everyone says, you know, like, well, do this and do that and um, meditate, which I advocate as well. But I mean, you've also got to, you've also got to stop the sources um, that cause this. 
or not stop, but at least deal with them, attenuate them, mitigate them. And I don't see a lot of this happening. Now, I, with my time constraints, I don't listen to as many podcasts as I'd like to, but I'm not hearing a lot of this. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, Robert, my con- actual concern is not even about so much about current adults, but what does this mixed messaging do to children? How confusing is that? And how do we mitigate it? I'm going to make it a complex question cluster, so we'll we'll probably look at it piece by piece. But for somebody who has to earn a living, has to wear many hats at work, some of which they do not like. I mean, that's pretty standard. How does one, uh, does one just tease out what you have to live with and and accept that because it's not the hill to die on? How would you, from your training point of view, your sociology, um, recommend some kind of approach? Yeah, I think that, um, you know, with, with children, that's, you know, that's the sharp end. We have to understand that, you know, as they move into this world that we're talking about right now, that they're, they're the ones that are going to, you know, bear the brunt of, of, of what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. I think that, you know, the one thing um, in this, you know, if we want to get back to authenticity, uh, we need to learn from from what we know so far, and 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 that is, you know, the the we've been thrust into this world of communication, which which uh, tends to uh, exacerbate certain elements of our evolutionary drives, not necessarily with great outcomes, and so we have to be able to manage that first of all, and in the book. We, you know, I've talked about the fact that we have to get kids um, off of screens, uh, the screen time, the social media, um, you know, there's, there are actual, you know, as you, as you well know, um, you know, actual processes in terms of brain development that, that, that are impaired or do not go as well as, as they should. Um, when, when a kid is in a, watching a flashy screen at a very young age and they are caught in a, a perpetual fight or flight response we actually in, in the book we actually talked about that comparing that with with kids that have gone through war who've grown up in war like in Syria where you have you know a, a young generation that grew up in war and how that affects their their brain and uh, and what that the downline of effect is that is, is going to be and then and then looking at the same type of thing that's happening with with a lot of screen time not to compare war with screen time but just say that this is the same type of thing that happens in in, in the brain so that's 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 the first thing as well and then I think that uh, really, we have to manage it. We can't just say, "Okay, we're going to just you know cut every kid off from you know uh, social media." We have to live with this. This is this is here to stay. Uh, right. But they call the Gen Zs the communaholics <laughs> because you know they're they're the ones that are are born into this and yeah. and they're and they're and they're used to it. So mm-hmm. uh, we we have to. I think really understand that, that, um, the, you know, these marionette strings are, are there, they're pulling, they're, they're working every day and they're working in the, essentially the, the, the subconscious. And so because of that, we have to be able to, first of all, manage the way that they, they, they communicate the, the, you know, the, the amount of exposure, um, understand what social media does. And then it gets into some of the bullying effects that you talked about and how, how pervasive that is for kids and, and really, really understanding that. And then I think it's it's really comes down to um, really uh, fostering the things that work. If we were to look at the studies, um, the longest running study on 
on living a good life, the happiness study that comes out of Harvard, uh, that one, which started in the 1930s, I believe. Yeah. And, you know, it, it looks at the, the fact that it looked at, you know, fairly well off, um, it's, it, in this study, it was all men, um, but fairly well off men from well off, you know, families in the United States, and then those who were, you know, less fortunate, and attract them. Uh, and you looked at, at uh, biological markers and everything else throughout their whole life and their longevity and disease processes. And at the end of the day, the ones that that actually flourished and lived the best and longest and ha- happiest lives were the were the ones that had the best social connections. They're the true blue social connections um not the not the number of likes that you have on your social media but the real the real connections and yeah. the, the the meaningful ones the face-to-face ones and that and and that's a and that's a really interesting lesson that's a huge takeaway that that you know as social creatures as humans as social creatures uh what really matters at the end of the day is the actual is the actual real FaceTime, the real family time the connections with loved ones and relatives and, and friends and communities and uh, and not and and that does lead back to this theme of authenticity because those are the real authentic connections. They're not make believe. They're not you're not joining this community of choice online so that you can pretend to be something that you're not. These authentic uh, so these authentic connections are the ones that make you feel good, and they're the ones that give you uh, the actual positive reward. That you know the, the the neurotransmitters, the oxytocin in our brain, the dopamine. All of this is is fed by these positive communications, and that for our kids. To get back to your question, that's something that we have to. That's something we have to then foster is that understanding that that um, uh, the the real reality of of living a good life and happy life is going to be the the real connections that they make, not necessarily the the online ones. And that I think that that's a good place to start uh, with kids and to try to have that real authenticity talk and, and and foster that within the home. I think that's probably the best answer that anyone can give, quite frankly. Um, you know, because that's that's what's missing. We being it, it's being substituted. This is long for the last few years. It's it's not something that's recent. You know, I, I always go back to Shakespeare, despite the I when I speak, despite the odd eye rolling, um, tongue clicking or sigh, uh, because it's very hard for me to come up with someone who is more intimately knowledgeable about the human condition. And in Hamlet, in his uh, one of his many plays, as we know, he he writes, to thine own self be true. And of course, this echoes the words of Socrates, who who um, says, know yourself, and basically said, know yourself, and also um, the unexamined life is not worth living. I mean, every transaction is going to go awry at most levels, psychologically, existentially, whatever way you want to look at it, if you don't even have self-knowledge as an adult. I mean, what is your starting point? What is your, what is your base? And... Um, I think one can be overwhelmed. I mean, I grew up in a, in a, in a very different part of the world and a very old school way, uh, you know, where people had differing opinions, but there was general consensus of what was solid and what was not or what was probably right and probably not. And I think that this is uh, something that is, uh, I mean, it, it, indicates that mental illness is only going to increase no matter what we do. So I'm pessimistic. 
sorry, I just am. Um, if some, if there's not something done, and, and it's a, it's a big, big project to yeah. try and reverse this, you know. Um, I mean, identity issues, as we know, in chronic pain, for example, you can have someone who says, I can no longer walk properly 100 meters. That doesn't bring a tear to their eye. I can no longer uh, watch a movie when they were still going to movies, watch a movie because i got to leave. But they'll tell you that they no longer make the wedding cake um, every five years or so with some family connection, and they just burst into tears. It's such mm. a strong part of their identity. Now, as a listener, one can say, well, so what? Go buy a cake or let someone else make it. I mean, an obvious solution. But these identity aspects, um, as you know, are very important and, um, and should not be impinged on too much. Yeah. Break. Yeah. Yeah. It's the, um, yeah, the, the one, uh, the visual that, uh, about identity, I think that really resonates with me is this, uh, this idea of the, of the onion and the layers of the onion. So on the mm -hmm. outside, on the outside of the onion, you know, the, the layers can be peeled off and that can be your, you know, the identity that you can change and that's changeable. It doesn't necessarily change who you are. So, you know, Oh, I'm a soccer coach or I, you know, teach piano or whatever it is, uh, you know, those things can come and go and it doesn't necessarily fundamentally change who you are, but as you peel off the layers of the onion and you get closer and closer to the center, you get down to what they call the non-negotiable identities. And those, you know, those are community, religion, ideology, whatever it's that ethnicity, those things are fundamentally tied to the perception that you have of yourself uh, and if those were to change, you feel like you're no longer you. And uh, so those are and, and in, in conflict, in conflict analysis, uh, you know, when I studied it, it was those when you get down to those center pieces, that's when you get war. That's where people start to fight to the death. And uh, because they feel that those those uh, core identities are being challenged. And in, in, in the, some of the research in your intro, when I when I did research in Nigeria, uh, for field research, uh, the the very very savvy leadership of these groups that were fighting uh, were not they weren't fighting over core identities, but then they would sell it to the people as if it was a core identity threat, yes. and that and that then created the, the actual fighting that got them to fight, and right. so yeah, yeah. so the, these core identities are very very important, very powerful. Yeah, well, I mean this uh, this impingement of structure uh, and social interact a uh, transaction i mean it was very common to hear people say um who were depressed to say um i they didn't say i feel depersonalized but they say it's like i'm i'm living in a really bad movie yeah. understood that they didn't write the script of and um it's 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 certainly a, a situation of dis-ease and, uh, you know, outcomes are, are just not good. Um, yeah. Robert, if this were to be in any way mitigated or controlled or something, who, who, who's, where is it likely to come from? Is it grass, grassroots or? Yeah, I think it will be grassroots. I don't think that, I, I think there's, a, there's such a distrust uh, of political leadership. There's a distrust of business leadership, media that I, it definitely does have to come from, from the grassroots. It certainly can come from, you know, a, you know, family units where, you know, the parents make a conscious decision as we just talked about to try to 
you know, create a, a better environment for their, for their kids. But, but it really has to come with some sort of self radical self-awareness. Um, and, you know, this is gets back to the, you know, quote unquote, authenticity, living an authentic life. But what is that? You have to, it's this radical self-awareness that one must understand the evolutionary marionette strings that are, you know, controlling some of the behavior on a day-to-day basis, and then try not try to, to change it, uh, but try to adapt. And, and this is the problem that we're experiencing right now. We're not necessarily ad- adapting. So that, that has to come through with at the individual level. And in the book, there's a couple of, you know, things that, uh, you know, very quickly that I can talk about. One is, is using coming very tactically that says there's a difference between an instinct and an impulse. And on a day-to-day basis, we have these impulses that we want to eat sugar. We want to eat, you know, fat. I uh, want to do this or that. Uh, but it's not necessarily, oh, we need better willpower to, do, to deal with this. We need to, we need to understand that our brain seeks reward and we just have to give ourselves reward in, in more positive ways. And then it alleviates some of that, um, that uh, negative reward that we're seeking all the time. So there are little ways that we can, that we can go about it on a day-to-day basis as well. And then remember that, you know, from that Harvard study, remember that relationships are, are, are so important and that really is the root of longevity and, uh, and health. And I think that's it. Those are good starting points. Yeah. It's, it instantly provides meaning um, and it connects you to something outside of your own life. Right. Uh, a network of close friends or family or something like that. And even the inter, it's not from the study, but even if you speak to the lady at the dry cleaning shop and, you know, for 20 years you go there and you always got something to say, well, you're looking well today or you had a nice holiday. Those little things add up. Uh, it's just the connectivity, I think. We just are wired, hardwired that way. Um, we getting close to the end. Um, Robert, uh, again, a wonderful conversation. Why do I feel like I'm in the middle of a conversation still? And um, because it's it's very interesting and the points you bring up are very pertinent and um, and, and illuminating. Um, Thank you. Thanks. I, I look forward to inviting you yet again if you would come. And um, there's just so much to speak about. And it's not because society is so bad. I'm not saying that at all. It's because things are changing so fast. Nobody's at the helm. That's right. Can be at the helm. Nobody's being blamed in the entire tape. I just want to look at what needs to be looked at. I'm, I'm a GP by training or family practitioner, as we say in Canada. My job is to solve problems. Yeah, now, they might, might say, well, these are very lofty problems. Well, I'm going to have a crack at it anyway. <laughs> well, um, folks, you've been listening to Healthscape. I'm your host, Dr. Trevor Campbell. Wonderful interview with Dr. Robert Barrett on the problem of authenticity, one of the features of our times. Thank you and goodbye. Thank you for tuning in to Healthscape with Dr. Trevor Campbell. We hope you'll join us again next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time and 12 noon Pacific Time or listen anytime on demand on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a healthy week.